Alright, as I said, we are going to be in Psalm 49. So if you have a Bible with you, please open it up. Psalms is at, you're probably near the very middle of your Bible, so kind of easy to find the book of Psalms. And we are in book two of the Psalms, Psalm 49. Let's hear God's word together. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit." For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol, with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry away nothing. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. That's the end of... God's word. Let's, let's pray. We need to. Father in heaven, we need your spirit to be able to open our eyes to this mysterious psalm, this, uh, this black cloth with a little jewel inside. Help us, Lord, to appreciate the blackness of the black and the brightness of the light. We pray that you would help me to speak in such a way that arrests our attention, but also, Lord, that your spirit would work in our hearts to wake us up from our slumber that we might believe. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. After such a heavy reading, I'm going to give us a little bit of comic relief here, okay, before we uh, jump into the deep end of the pool. We're going to play a game called Proverb Riddles. Okay, so I'll read a few riddles, and one at a time, you will try to guess the proverb behind it. 
if you were in our Proverbs Bible study, you kind of know what we're doing here. Uh, we're not going to be using Proverbs that are in the Bible, but they are famous proverbial homespun wisdom sayings. So let's, let's try it out. You ready? Here's the riddle. A rotating fragment of mineral collects no biophytic plants. What's that one? A rolling stone gathers no moss. Okay, you got it. All right. How about number two? Everything is legitimate in matters pertaining to ardent affection and armed conflict between nations. All is fair in love and war. Very good. All right. Here's the third one. Trace back the path on which financial remunerations connect benefactors. Follow the money. Ah, I wrote that one myself. I'm glad you finally got it. Okay, why do I do that? To get us warmed up to solve riddles and to get us thinking how Proverbs are essentially brief sayings that seek to answer profound, even vexing questions about life. Here's an age-old question that prompts all kinds of proverbial answers. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous falter? One of the most common answers we hear so much today is the third riddle that I gave you. Follow the money. That's the cynical answer. The world's view is, if you've got more than enough, then trust you'll live on easy street, no matter how you live your life. But if you don't have enough, then trust your troubles will plunge you into hardship whether you live well or not. You might say it like this, money can't buy happiness, but it sure does help, right? Well, you hear the ring of truth in that, don't you? And yet, and yet, why do you get that nagging feeling that you've been duped, sold a bill of goods, and are ultimately headed for disaster. Riches, whether you're trusting in what you have or in hoping what you don't yet have but you hope to have, you suspect deep down that you can't buy what you really need. And here in Psalm 49, God is here to tell us the answer to that riddle and to unravel it for you. To remind you of those who are visiting with us today, we are in the middle of a four-week series, uh, alternating back and forth between uh, Psalms and the book of Hebrews, um, on a four-piece unit in the book two of the Psalms. Psalm 49 is a part of this four-psalm uh, unit about sin and repentance. So a few weeks ago, we saw Psalm 50, which was God summoning the church, you remember that, to face up to our sinful worship. And then Psalm 51, a couple weeks later, uh, was an ideal model for how we respond with repentance. Now, in Psalm 49, which we're looking at this morning, God summons not just the church, but all peoples, Jews, Gentiles, as we saw, high and low, rich and poor, to face the reality of the human condition. And then in a couple weeks, Lord willing, in Psalm 52, we will see a grotesque example of how not to respond to what we hear this morning. As we walk through this psalm, I've got it divided up into uh, three points. And those three points are consider the riddle, contemplate its truth, and confess your trust. I'll say them again. Consider a riddle, contemplate its truth, and confess your trust. Let's look at the first four verses. This is where God summons us 
and says, it's time to pay attention. Meeting, not just a family meeting, but a meeting for everyone. And so he summons not just his covenant people, like I said, but all peoples everywhere. And his message, the psalmist's message, is intended basically for everyone from all walks of life. So you see that it says low and high and rich and poor. And you might think, well, he didn't mention the middle class. That's not what he means. It's this extreme, this extreme, and everybody in between. In other words, this is a message for literally everyone. And anyone who listens can gain wisdom from it. That's what he says in the first four verses. But you have to really listen. You wouldn't have been able to solve those riddles that I gave to you at the beginning of the sermon if you weren't listening. If I didn't prompt you and say, riddle, and you went, ooh, ooh I, I know how this works. I gotta think. I gotta listen. I gotta, I gotta turn my drain, brain in a different direction so that I can figure out what the answer is to the riddle. Now, it's not just a riddle that God is opening and unpacking for us, but it's a proverb also. And in the Bible, a proverb is a short saying that includes comparisons and analogies, and it opens, us, opens up for us an enigmatic truth. You might even say a dark saying. If you have the King James Version in front of you, that's how it translates it. So here announced, God is announcing that he is going to solve, literally he's going to open the proverbial riddle by answering and expounding upon its saying. That's the first four verses. And it's going to give us wisdom and understanding. If we listen carefully, we ponder it, and we see what it's trying to say. The, the question behind the proverbial riddle is the question that God is seeking to answer for us. And you might want to be asking, just as an aside, why did you choose Psalm 49? Why didn't you choose a detour and choose 1 Corinthians 15 or, or Luke 24 or a passage that's traditionally Easter like that? Well, I think God is smarter than all of us. <laughs> he knows that on Easter Sunday, there's a lot more people here than there were on Palm Sunday. A lot of folks were out for spring break or traveling, and, and now we're all back, and there's a larger crowd. There's the, the congregation. There's those who are Christians in other places. There's family and friends that come together. There are people who we call Easter Christians who only come once a year. And God knows that if you're all going to be here on this Sunday, then this is a message he wants everybody to hear. So what is the message? Well, we know it's a proverb, but maybe you didn't pick up exactly what that proverb was when I read Psalm 49 earlier. It's not exactly obvious. You kind of have to think about it. Um, maybe it's uh, verses 5 and 6, right after he says, I'm going to give you a proverb and solve you a riddle. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the riches of their abundance of their riches? That's possible, but I don't think that's quite right. I think the best option is verses 12 and 20, which are almost identical. You see, verse 12 follows and summarizes a longer section that expounds on the question the riddle addresses. What's verse 12? Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. And verse 20 concludes the psalm by repeating that proverb in verse 12 almost verbatim, but with a tiny little change, which actually ends up being a significant twist. So if Psalm 49 
It's all about God's life and death proverbial riddle. And again, here's the, the twist, verse 20. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. If Psalm 49 is all about God's life and death proverbial riddle, and how we all need to be listening carefully to it, then it makes sense, I think, to announce a coming proverb at the beginning, then set up the question, that's verses 5 and 6 and following, then state the proverb right in the middle, verse 12, and then repeat it at the very end with an urgent call for understanding it. Okay? Now, let's take a look at the, the riddle, the proverb. Man's pomp has connection with both wealth and status. We can uh, line up tons and tons of Bible verses to be able to demonstrate that. I don't think we need to because we know that pomp is necess not necessarily a, a good adjective. It's not a good characteristic. You think of someone who is pompous and you're not giving them a compliment, right? <laughs> the experience of death, it talks about, for both humans and animals, it's paralleling, okay? So it's saying man in his pomp will not remain. How will he not remain? Well, he will perish like the beasts. Like the beasts, he will perish. Despite wealth and honor in this earthly life, the Bible's trying to tell us, every single one of us, when he's summoning us all here to listen to this message that he wants everybody to hear, when we're all here in the same room, that everyone shares the same fate as the animals, as the beasts. Ed read 1 Corinthians 15 just before he led us in congregational prayer. In Adam all die, when we know that in Christ all shall be made alive, but lest we skip over the first part, in Adam all die. His pomp will, will not remain or abide. And the image there is kind of like a house guest that shows up just for the night. He's not going to be living with you. He just needs a place to lay his head, wash his face in the morning, change his clothes, have a meal, a little bit of conversation, and he's on his way. That's what we're like, God says. We will not abide. The wording in verse 20, like I mentioned, is almost identical to verse 12. The word that they change one letter in is yalin and yabin. Okay? So they even rhyme, which is a bonus because you don't usually get that in Hebrew poetry. And the L and the B in Hebrew in the script, you know this? If you kind of write it by hand and you're doing it a little bit sloppy and you let a thousand years go by so the text kind of degrades, they look an awful lot alike, the L and the B. But I think it's intentionally different because it's a slight twist because the change makes it so that will not remain morphs into without understanding. Now think with me for a moment. What's the significance of that? Whether you remain or not, depends on you really laying hold of the wisdom that's concealed in this proverbial riddle. You see that? If you had just the riddle without any context, then we'd all be in a lot of trouble because we could kind of interpret it however we wanted, right? We could say, well, maybe it's figurative or maybe this was referring to other people. Proverbs can be hard puzzles and they're harder to unpack and they're hardest to allow them to change our lives. Let me, let me kind of illustrate. 
Many of you remember when the Y2K bug was the big deal in, in the world back in the, the late 90s. And there were all kinds of different ways that, that different people responded to that. If you don't remember the Y2K bug, it was basically um, a, a glitch in the way that we wrote our computer programs back in the 50s and the 60s and 70s, not anticipating that we would still be using the same old code when the year 2000 came around. And so they were using those two digits for the year, like 74 and 75 and 76. And by the time it would roll around to 00, zero it would screw up all the math and break the program. And er, escape, control escape, and everything would shut down. And so there were some folks who started raising their voices and saying, oh, we got a problem here. We need to, to fix this. Otherwise, stuff's going to break all over the place. And not just in your computer, but street signs and airlines and all kinds of stuff. We could have death and mayhem. And there were different ways that people responded to that. Some people said, ah, it's two zeros. What can, what can happen? Other folks realized that, yeah, this is probably pretty serious, but we don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, maybe planes will fall out of the sky, or maybe the lights will flicker for a second. I mean, who knows? And there were others who said, I think the sky really is going to fall. And so the best thing for me to do is to stock up on food and weapons and build a cabin in the woods and defend my family as civilization literally comes undone. And then there were a few folks who said, you know what? Yeah, this is a serious problem, but it's fixable, realistically. And so what did they do? With their wisdom and understanding, as they thought about it, they began to systematically and methodically go about fixing the problem. So that when December 31st, 1999 rolled around, and everyone was playing Prince, like it's 1999, the lights flickered, and that's all that happened. <laughs> because they fixed the problem. Now, why do I show that story? You might be thinking, well, <laughs> I might have been like the person number two, because I'm not a computer programmer. But here's the point. You didn't have to be someone who had technical expertise to be able to understand the nature of the problem and contribute. In other words, be a part of the team that worked to solving the problem. You just had to stop and think about it to be able to see what the, the, the reasoning was, why we need to stop and address it, and then apply wisdom and understanding so that we could be able to address the particular issue at hand. Now, God knows that that's exactly how everything works in the Bible. A lot of people turn the Bible and they, they open it up and they, they read it and they think, okay, I've read that, now I'm done. And they don't stop and slow down and let it sink in. I remember uh, uh, on the job, actually, I worked on the Y2K project and I was on a team of eight people during my, uh, my senior year of college. And uh, it was a, a co-op co project, I think it was. And one of the guys came by who was on my team on my lunch break and saw me reading my Bible. And he said, oh, what, what you reading there? And I said, oh, it's, it's the Bible. And he goes, oh, yeah, I've read that. And I just looked at him and went, you've read that? I don't think you've read what you think you've read. <laughs> the Proverbs are especially like this. You have to stop. You have to slow down. And you have to contemplate their truth in order for it to sink in. And that's why God is saying, let's not just look at these two verses, 12 and 20. We need to unpack them. We need to contemplate them. We need to figure out what they mean and their implications. So let's do that now. This is point two, contemplate its truth. Well, in verses 7 through 9, we see that the ransom price for a life 
is too costly for a mere man to pay. So what is that talking about? A ransom. Well, if someone's kidnapped, a ransom may be paid to the kidnappers to restore the person to family. Uh, you pay money to release someone from trouble or death. That's the idea. Sometimes if you have enough money in the Bible, you can pay a ransom price to buy yourself out of slavery. It doesn't have to be someone else, but if you have your own money, if you've saved up, then you can ransom yourself. And sometimes that ransom is associated with satisfaction for sin or legal justice. If you have the sermon notes, you can see a number of different um, references there. However, the laws of Moses that governed redemption could not ransom the wicked from the death penalty. That was on purpose. It was to teach us a lesson that there's no amount of money that you can buy yourself back from death. Only God can ransom the wicked. And that means that we don't have to be so intimidated by the wealthy and the powerful and those who seem like they have all the control in this world and, and they're on easy street because they have all the money because they don't have the ability to buy life. Not one minute. Jesus makes this point when he asks, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and still lose his life? Now, we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this because this is, this is fairly obvious, but God wants us to remi be reminded that we think we understand these things, but we really don't think about them very often. Moving on to verses 10 and 11, verses 14, 16, and 17, these are all around the proverb. They're unpacking it. They're contemplating its truth. We find that your day to die is appointed and that you'll take nothing to the grave. Now, you probably didn't think that when you were coming to Easter Sunday service this morning that we were going to be talking so much about this. I remember a few years ago, we brought neighbors uh, to Easter Sunday, and everyone was so glorious, and we were wearing our hats and our Easter dresses and our Easter suits, and Larry stood up and basically preached a sermon that was on death and hell and how resurrection is the, the only hope for us. And I remember shrinking, going, what are my neighbors going to be thinking? And here I am doing the same thing. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament imagination, Sheol, okay, can simply mean the grave as a burial place for the human body. But more often, it describes the realm of the dead. In other words, the underworld. In the New Testament, that idea doesn't go away. Sheol is translated into the Greek in a sense, and it's called Hades. You've heard of that before, right? And that points to the place also where the wicked dead and Jesus points this out, are eternally destroyed. In the book of Revelation, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, and so at the very end, they are merged with hell. In the end, they become one and the same as hell. And so what God is telling here to everyone, everyone, high and low, rich and poor, yes, even you, you are headed for the grave. All your advantages that give you a measure of security and of comfort and control, they'll all be taken away from you. Everything. It'll all be gone. And those who assume that money and status will somehow protect them, and all of us fall into this trap. From God's point of view, Psalm 49, he sees a bunch of people who are 
getting closer and closer day by day to the day that they're appointed to die. And what are we doing? We're working and accumulating stuff. We have people who are streaming across the southern border right now from Mexico and Latin America. Why? Because they think that if you come to America, you can become one of the haves rather than the haves-nots. Because they see us with all this stuff and they think that's how you're saved. That's how you live the good life. And we're giving them that impression by the way we live. You can't take it with you. We leave literally everything to others. Now, if you're <clears throat> someone who's, uh, who's wealthy and, uh, and has a big 401k account, something like that, that might bother you that you have to leave it to others who may not spend it or save it or invest it or treat it in the same way that, that you would. I mean, you worked hard for this, this nest egg. And you got to leave it to, to them? I mean, is that what it's all for? Or if you're someone who doesn't have such a big nest egg and you look at those who are kind of lording it over you and not sharing, you might think, hey, that's, that's actually kind of a good thing that we're all going to be poor, the same poor, equitable <laughs> in the grave because none of us can take anything with us. But the Bible says that every person's day of death is appointed. I texted uh, Ben and Rebecca last night to kind of give them a heads up that I was preaching this sermon because I didn't want to ambush them with this after what they've been through with her, her younger brother whose appointed day came. It can come slowly and you can see it, even yourself like Madge Iker, who could, who could feel her brain and her memory degrading. Or it can happen like my younger brother, 21 years old, who had a heart event on a treadmill and that was it. It was his appointed day. Psalm 49 tells us that like sheep led to the slaughter, they are appointed for the grave. So a few months ago, we looked at Psalm 23. Yea, I, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Well, this looks a whole lot different now if death is your shepherd. Because death personified, leading you through death valley, that doesn't sound like a very good prospect, does it? Jesus' parable of the rich young man, I'm sorry, the rich man and Lazarus makes this point. If you've got time, you can turn with me there. I want to read it to you. This is kind of like our New Testament reading. This is Luke chapter 16. I thought about summarizing it, and I tried to, and I realized Jesus did a way better job than I could have ever done. Jesus says, and this is a parable, okay? There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And he sent Laz and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. 
But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I think what Jesus is saying is that if we can't see our need for the gospel and the gospel in the Old Testament, Moses, the prophets, and the writings, then even if someone rises from the dead, we still won't believe. So we're not in a place of, of, um, of poverty looking at an Old Testament text as we search for the gospel. The principle here is that we need to be honest with ourselves. You need to be honest with yourself and confess what you're confessing and what you're trusting in uh, for your death and with your appointment with the grave. Because when you die, it's too late to change. You'll spend all of eternity living with the consequences of who or what you trusted in this life. Now that leads us to our third point. Confess your trust. As far as I can gather, there are three uh, types of trust that you can confess in. And two of them are really, really bad. (laughs) We're not to the diamond yet. We're still on the black cloth. Look at the first one. If you're wealthy, will you trust yourself to figure out your death? Let's say you say to yourself something like this. I'm determined to find a way to live forever in some form or fashion. And there are any number of ways that people try to do this. They try to, uh, to um, make sure that they write a book and make sure that their family and their friends all have it on their shelf so somehow they can be rem- remembered that way. And then there's the extreme on the opposite end where you have someone like a Ted Williams baseball player whose body remains cryogenically frozen in some lab in an undetermined location, I think, at this point, with his head severed so it can be studied by science, so that when the day comes and we figure out the fountain of youth and the formula to be able to to reboot him, he can come back. We are a people who try to live forever. But do you really believe that your scheme will actually save you? I mean, for example, if you've cheated others to get ahead, and you got away with it, do you believe that you'll actually cheat death? Like, you got the hang of it and you're going to figure it out? Have you surrounded yourself with people who approve of your boasting and your success? As if somehow there's immortality and popularity? Then you're living in an echo chamber of lies, friends. Or maybe you're planning to leave your name as a legacy that will live on in perpetuity. The rich and powerful have been trying this plan since the beginning. It's a fool's errand. And I'm literally saying since the beginning. Adam and Eve's first son, Cain, left the garden, left the presence of the Lord to go off to the land of Nod. And what did he do? 
he built a city and named it after his son, Enoch. Anybody know where Enoch is? It's gone. Now, that was thousands and thousands of years ago. Here's, here's an example of more recent. Our friends, uh, Kirk and Robin Goolsby, recently purchased, and you probably know this because it was in the paper, the, the Mosby Manor uh, up in town, right? And they've moved it in, they've moved in, they've started to modernize it, and they're making it their home. And their friends are starting to name or jokingly refer to the Mosby Manor now as the Moolsby Manor. John Mosby, gray ghost of Civil War fame, local boy, name already starting to fade away. And we're living in a cancel culture, aren't we? Where, where names are being stripped off of lands, of street signs, of schools, where monuments are being toppled. Why is this happening? Because a new morality, a new ideal is sweeping in, because it always happens. And the names that were famous and we tried to remember and whose people tried to, to, uh, to bring to, uh, to, to culture so that we would remember them, they're gone, faded away into history. And the same thing will happen to you. In two or maybe three generations, if anybody knows anything about you, it'll be your name and your sex. That's it. They won't know who you loved and what you liked to do and what you read and what you were good at and your strengths and your weaknesses or any of that stuff. Most likely... They won't even remember your name. You'll be gone. The grave will open up. And you'll fall into that pit. And it'll consume everything about you. You can't take anything with you. Not even your name. There's another way that we can put our trust in something. If you're blissful... And what I mean by that is kind of obliviously blissful. You know what I mean? Will you trust your death will somehow just work itself out? Like, maybe you say to yourself, oh, shucks, pastor. I mean, I'm living a blessed life. Look at how well I've done for myself. And yeah, I know. Life can be hard at times, but I refuse to be a downer. I mean, (laughs) I'm not going to shake your hand at the end of the service. Overall, my life is beautiful and bright, and I'm going to keep on enjoying the praise of those who I've been kind to along the way. I paid it forward, and I'm going to reap the benefits. Well, Psalm 49 is not disagreeing that you have a blissful life. It's just asking you to look what's at the end of the tunnel. For all the light and cheerfulness that fills such a man's life, God says in verse 19, His soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. And don't forget the proverb, verse 20. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So just because your pomp is blissful and not arrogantly pompous, it doesn't make it a help at death's door. Okay, the third way that we can respond in this passage. There's a glimmer of hope. Where's the diamond, Pastor Brian? Here he is. If you're faithful, will you trust God to ransom and receive your soul from death? This is why Psalm 49 was the 
almost the perfect Old Testament passage for us to preach this morning. Because in the Old Testament, there are only small little glimmers of hope that there is hope for life after death. And yes, they are veiled. So for example, Jesus looks back to Exodus chapter 3 and he says, you know that part where God's talking to Moses at the burning bush and he says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob? Jesus says, I am. Present tense. Not I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God is the God of the living, not of the dead. Therefore, we know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive today in the presence of the Lord. There is life after death. Or Daniel chapter 12 near the end of the time that the Old Testament is being written, and you have a vision given to Daniel that's spoken that says, in the end, when there's to and fro and the increase of knowledge, the souls will be raised from the dust. Wow. Or Psalm 16, where David says, you will not let your holy one see corruption. And Peter picks up on that in the Pentecost sermon. There's only a handful of places in the Old Testament where we get those those high points where it's like the clouds clear and the the veil opens and we can see there is hope for life after death. And right here in verse 15, we have it. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Listen to how the psalmist can speak so bluntly of death, which we've done for 35 minutes even of his own imminent demise. He's he's not counting on being like Elijah or Enoch. He walks with God, and then he was not. He's gone. He doesn't have to face death. No, he still has eternal hope for his own soul because the power of Sheol will not have a hold on him. That hope, my friends, is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why we come to church every single Sunday because we're celebrating the life the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Because guess what? The age of the Spirit has already begun. When when Jesus was trying to whisper to his his disciples before he was uh, going to the cross and said, by the way, the Son of Man is going to have to suffer and will be crucified, and on the third day will rise again. They were like, what? That's like a category mistake. Resurrection? That happens on the last day. And it did but not in the way that they intended it or understood it. They weren't listening to the proverb. They weren't thinking about it. They weren't contemplating. They weren't unpacking it. That's what God is asking us to do today, to think. That's how we apply the scriptures first. Think. Reason it out. Let it sink down deep into your heart so it changes everything about you. Not only the way you think, not only the way you feel, not only your affections, but your whole life. And what is Jesus saying? The last day happened, at least the first of the last days, on Resurrection Sunday. The new age began. The psalmist is hoping that the power of the grave will not contain him. We can believe what he says because God has already started doing it. The New Testament talks about how Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And if you're a farmer, you know that If the first fruits is really good, then the harvest is going to be magnificent. And that's what we're hoping in. We're hoping that God, even though we will sink into death and take nothing with us, it will not hold us forever. Because those who trust in the risen Christ, who put their hope in the risen Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and his promise to raise us with him 
united in his death and united in his resurrection, we also, on the last, last day, when he comes again for the final harvest, will be raised up and the fingers of death will not be able to pull us back down. Amen? This is our hope. God summons everyone to listen to divine wisdom about life. So don't be afraid or be fooled by pompous people who trust that they're going to cheat death. For all will die and take absolutely nothing with them. So fear God alone, who will raise the dead to life. The question is, do you trust God to ransom and receive your soul? Let me close with this. Psalm 49 is a song about a proverb that confronts us with the reality that there is something much, much worse than death, but there's something much, much greater than treasure on earth. Therefore, I think it's fitting to end with this mysterious exhortation of, to true wisdom from the book of Proverbs. Because we've been looking at a, a proverb out of place, in a sense, in Psalm 49. Now that Psalm 49 has prepared us to understand wisdom for life, Proverbs 24, 11 through 14. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And he will not repay man according to his work? My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our our hope is not in the treasures of this world. And when it is, take them away that we might have our hope only set on the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, that we might also trust in him that the power of the grave will not lay hold of us and we will live again forever. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe, Lord, that the gospel is true and that Jesus is Lord and that all that come to him in repentance and faith will have the same confidence that the psalmist has in verse 15, that the power of Sheol will not be able to contain us and that we will be received by you, ransomed from the grave forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.